This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Please remain standing for the reading of the word this morning that comes from Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us not consider how to stir up one another, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit for some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is God's word. Please be seated. Good morning again. We are in a series on worship, and we introduced it last week. And we talked about worship in general, and we said that we're wired to worship as human beings, which means that we're always worshiping. But the way we come to worship things is that our heart is wooed towards those things, whether we worship true things or false things. It's at the heart level that we're wooed to worship them. And because of that, sometimes we're confused and our hearts are wooed by the wrong things, and so those wires get crossed. So we're still worshiping because we're wired to worship but sometimes the wires get crossed. And in order for those wires to go back to where they ought to be, we need to be renewed. We need to be renewed in our worship. And this week we're moving on more specifically to talk about corporate worship. That is what's happening now when we're gathered here for worship. Earlier this summer, Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook, had their inaugural, what he calls, Communities Summit. And... In this time, part of the address, he praised churches, actually. He praised churches for historically playing a huge role in society. Particularly, he said, churches have always provided support in the community. They've stoked charitable volunteerism. And he notes what a lot of people are noting, sociologically speaking, and that is that church attendance is going down with the younger generation, and it's going down in general. And so in the face of this declining church membership, he suggests that Facebook could help. And so he thinks Facebook could fill the void, and this is what he says, quote, it's so striking that for decades, membership in churches and all kinds of groups has declined as much as one quarter. That's a lot of people who need to find a sense of purpose and support somewhere else, end quote. Now, this isn't new. Uh, A few years back, two comedians in the UK who were, uh, they had their own journeys, spiritually speaking, and as they were talking, they both realized that they, they had a desire to have some type of weekly gathering among secular people. So like church, but no God. And so they brainstormed, and in January 6, 2013, they had their first meeting. And 200 people, this is in the UK, 200 people came the first week. And then the second week, there were over 300 people. It's now a thing. Okay, it's called Sunday Assembly. And they have over 70 chapters in eight different countries including many places in the United States. And on their website, if you look, if you can pull up in two windows side by side, 
a website of a, of a mega church in the United States and their website, it looks identical. I mean, it looks like a church website. It's called the Sunday Assembly. And it says this on their website, Sunday Assembly is a secular congregation that celebrates life. Their motto is, live better, help often, wonder more. So there's this impulse, right, to be fine with mottos and manifestos, but not doctrine or divine things, right? Maybe transcendence, like you can experience transcendence at a U2 concert, but the divine is something different. Transcendence is some sort of unique experience in the ordinary that, uh, that you, you're not used to and, and you, you put some stock in that. But the divine, especially biblically speaking, has to do with a person and a person who has claims over you. So we can be fine with transcendence and the experience of it, but not the divine. And two Harvard researchers along this line at the Divinity School, Harvard Divinity School, in 2015, they put out a study, fascinating study, called How We Gather. You can get the PDF for free online. And they argue that religion is not dying in the United States or anywhere else. They argue that it's merely changing. So they found that the religious nuns, those would be people, especially younger people, who increasingly say, I'm spiritual but not religious, uh, or I don't believe in organized religion, that they have not evolved out of their spiritual or religious longings or impulses. They're simply seeking to fulfill those things in new places. So what are we to make of this? And the reason I think that's the right question to ask after I read all this, what are we to make of this, is because we're here. We are gathered. So in this Harvard study, they title it, How Do We Gather? And we could say, well, why do we gather? Why is it that we gather? And that's the first question that we're going to answer this morning, is why do we gather? Because it's clear that we need to be reminded of why we gather. Because if you were to read that study and then be followed up by the researchers who wrote the study, and they said, why do you gather on Sunday morning instead of eating brunch with your friends at the White Wolf Inn? What would you say? Would you have an answer? Because the people and how we gather in that study, what they said was, I need a sense of community, I need a sense of personal transformation, I need a sense of transcendence, and I need direction and purpose in my life. Those were the reasons why these secular people said they gathered. And they sing together, and they hear motivational speeches. And so I'm not, I'm not talking down on them. That's not even my point. In fact, I think that the impulse is, is very good. It makes sense to me. There's a lot I could affirm. But when I'm speaking to us, I'm speaking to people in this room. Do you have an answer to why we gather? And that's what I want to talk about this morning. So we could say, why do we gather? And if we look at verse 19 this morning, we would say, we gather because we've been summoned to draw near to God. That's why we gather. So in verse 19, if you look down, the writer of the Hebrews is pointing out that through Jesus we now have confidence to enter into the holy places. And then in verse 22, he exhorts these Christians to act faithfully upon this confidence. Because if you have this confidence, there is a right response to this confidence. And he says the right response to having access to God through Jesus Christ is to draw near. It's to respond to what you have in Jesus Christ. And if you read verse 19, many Christians, some Christians will say, this shows us, well, the whole passage really, but, but verse 19 shows us that because this is true, in that sense, Christians live all of life before the face of God. That's where this Latin phrase, quorum Deo, comes from, before the face of God. 
So that's true. And we talked about this last week, that, that worship is really all of life in the broad sense. And so as Christians, we're always worshiping. But I argue that there's something unique about corporate worship, and I said that we would talk more about it this week. And I think there is something unique. And in fact, I think this whole passage, the writer of the Hebrews is talking about corporate worship. I think I see that from the context of Hebrews, and I see it particularly from verses 23, and particularly 24 and 25, where he says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. So, what do we say about this idea of all of life is worship, but yet I'm telling you something unique is happening here? I've heard a great illustration. Think about this. Imagine that we were in a time and a place where there were kings and queens, and that's the way people were ruled. And let's say that you and I were servants of the king in the royal service. So we would wear certain clothes then. Uh, we would be doing certain things during the day for our occupation. And because we would be so clear that we were always in the service of the king, in a sense, we would always be serving the king wherever we were or whatever we did. We would always be representing him. And that's true. But yet, we all know that if we're doing our thing and the king himself walks into the room and speaks directly to us, something unique is happening right there. We've always been serving the king. We've always been serving in the name of the king. In that sense, we've always been worshiping, but something's different when he walks in and he, and he cups your face like this and he speaks directly to you. And that's exactly what happens in corporate worship. We gather and we hear from God's word. He speaks to us both in his word and in the sacraments. Or it's kind of like this. What about in your marriage relationship? This is a ring, right? A wedding ring. And so what this tells everyone is that I'm married. I'm always married. No matter where I go, I'm married. And so in that sense, I am upholding my marriage vows wherever I go, or at least I ought to be. So what I look at, what I say, how I speak about my wife, all of that should be fulfilling my marriage vows. But what happens when my wife or your spouse walks into the room and looks you in the eye and directs you specifically. Isn't that not a little unique in terms of upholding your marriage vows when you listen, when you respond, when you look them in the eye, when you offer your presence? So you see, you're always married and we're always worshiping. We're always living before the face of God. But when God speaks to us directly as he's ordained, which is when his people gather weekly, something unique happens. And that's why worship has been called dialogical. And that's because what we do when God speaks is we respond. In that sense, it's like a dialogue. We respond with our singing. We respond with our praising. We respond by reciting his words back to him. So we've been summoned uniquely in corporate worship to draw near to God. And it's important because this language of drawing near is sort of technical language in the Bible, or at least it has a usage that's common. So when you look all throughout the Bible, when the Bible tells you to draw near to God, it's speaking particularly of when you come to God for worship, and when that happens, you both declare his covenant faithfulness and you hear instruction from him. So when you read the Bible, if you were to Google, uh, let us draw near to God, that would be the context you mostly would find yourself in. God's calling his people to hear instruction, to praise his covenant faithfulness. It's no different for us. When we read the, the words, let us draw near to God. And so God is speaking to us by his words in corporate worship. It's dialogical because we respond to him. So we gather because we've been summoned to draw near. 
Okay, that's what we've said. Now, think about the language of drawing near, right? It doesn't simply mean what happens when I'm in a subway in New York City when it's packed, right? I draw near to lots of people. I draw really near to lots of people, right? You're sort of squished in. Is that what we're talking about when we say draw near? We know it's not. I mean, it's not talking about mere distance or physical proximity. It's much more intimate than that. It's, it's almost a laying bare of oneself. If you draw near to your spouse, that's way different than drawing near to someone on subway. If you draw near to your children when you're tucking them in, that's way different than drawing near to someone you're sitting next to now if your shoulders accidentally touch, right? We know there's an intimate reality. And when we draw near, something else happens. We can't hide our blemishes. When we draw near to something, we can't hide anymore. We're laid bare. We can't hide false motives. We have to be honest when we draw near to God or to anyone. And in this context, we see we have absolutely nothing to offer. You see that? It wasn't bring something with you and give it to the person at the door. It was, no, Jesus has broken down the door and you follow him in the living way. And so drawing near is a very, very special phrase in the scriptures. So why do we gather? We gather because we've been summoned to draw near to God. But that has to lead us to the next thing and what we'll talk about the rest of the time. And that is what happens when we draw near. Right? So we, we, we gather because we've been summoned to draw near to God, but what happens when we draw near? And the first thing is that we receive God's gifts. Look at verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Notice this, right after he says draw near, he says this thing about faith and full assurance of faith. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. What is faith But if it's not this? And that is, faith is looking upon the good gifts of God. It's looking away from yourself to God. It's looking away from your own works to God. And so, what he's saying is that we come to receive God's gifts by faith. And I'm not making this up, and I'm going to show you from Hebrews three times where I'm getting this, okay? So Hebrews 4.16, he uses the same phrase, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 11.6, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he reward those who seek him. You don't come to reward God. It's not like you're giving God his due when you come to corporate worship. Hebrews 7, verse 25. Consequently, Jesus, he, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. We come because we've been summoned to draw near to receive. You come with open hands. I come with open hands. God isn't requiring anything of us to get in because Jesus did it all. That's what we already read. And so if we think about this, it's important for us to realize that when we receive God's gifts, it's a means to receiving him because all of God's gifts end in communion with him. Can you imagine if that wasn't true? Imagine this, imagine a father who isn't really interested in, in being with his kids. He doesn't really have time to be with his kids, but he's responsible for his kids. He feels obligated to his kids. He happens to be quite wealthy and of means, and so 
He says, you can take my name. That's fine. You're my child. I, I bore you. I, I brought you forth into this world, sort of. And he then says, so I'm going to give you gifts to keep you happy, but I don't really have time for you to be with me. And so I'm going to keep giving you gifts. I'm going to keep giving you things. I'm going to give you health. I'm going to give you a family. I'm going to give you friends. I'm going to give you food. But not me, because I don't have time for you. Do you think you'd be fulfilled by that relationship? You think that'd be okay going on forever? Just, I don't need you, Father. I just need your gifts. Of course not. Every single one of us eventually would not just feel rejected. We know we would be rejected. Because a true relationship is when someone offers themselves, not just their gifts, not just what they have. And so all of God's gifts then, of course, must lead us to him. That's the purpose of all of them. So when we receive God's gifts, we receive him. And so I use the word corporate worship. We gather in corporate worship. Sometimes people say worship service. That's not a bad thing to say, as long as you understand who's serving whom. When you say you come to worship service, do you think that you come to serve God? No, you look in the Bible, God, when his people gather, he's there to serve them. And we receive now, of course, we respond. That's the proper response, right? God has done everything for you, verse 19. Therefore, let us draw near to him. So we come to receive God's gifts when we draw near. When we draw near, we also recite God's faithfulness. Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You see, when you gather... When we gather, we don't just receive, we also come to recite God's covenant faithfulness to us. But what's important to realize is we're not just reciting his past faithfulness to people a long time ago as though we're coming to commemorate all these amazing things God used to do. No, we actually, when we proclaim his faithfulness in the past and when we hear others talk and speak and sing of his praises, of his faithfulness to them now, we realize that when we come into the presence of God, the power of God is always there. And so if we really draw near, receive his gifts, and recite his faithfulness, we will be changed. Because in the presence of God is the power of God to change. And so the reason God's people have always recited his faithfulness is because it changes you. When you recite and behold the faithfulness of God, it will take you to places where you see his faithfulness in your life. And so when you think about all those times where many of us are in places right now for lots of reasons, when we're frustrated, things may not be going like you want, things may not be going as fast as you want them to, things may be scary and confusing. Not all of us, but some of us. And if you're not there, you have been there in that place and you will be there in that place. What are you gonna do? What do you expect to happen? Well, when we recite God's faithfulness, it will take us to times when he was faithful to us. And it's not just a remembering, but it will change you. It will change you because you'll recall his faithfulness. You'll recall his strength. You'll recall the peace that surpasses all understanding. And it'll move you to trust. And as Ben said a few weeks ago, it's not the simplistic kind. It's not, well, he did that then, and so I'm just going to marginalize it, act like it doesn't hurt, act like it doesn't matter, and just arrive. No, we have to Come and listen and receive and go through the pain, through the complex to get to the other side. 
That's what we saw in the Psalms. That's what we do every week as we recite God's faithfulness together. And you know what's amazing is that God still works wonders, and he's doing it right now in this room. I don't know who it is. You may never tell me, but God is going to change someone forever today out of the ordinary preaching of his word. It's, it will happen. You may not even know it happened to you. It might happen to me as I heard the word read. God has chosen to use the ordinary preaching of the word and the sacraments in an extraordinary way to work wonders, to put forth his faithfulness, to change his people. Because in those things, that's his presence. And in his presence is his power to change you and to change me. I was reminded recently of a story that made me think, do we come expectantly to worship? Do you come expectantly or you just show up? We're gonna talk about this more next week. How do we engage corporate worship in a way that we can be expectant? But let me just ask you that, leave you right now with this question. Did you come this morning, sort of ho-hum, be like, yeah, that's what I do on Sunday morning? Or did you come expectant that the God of the universe would be here among his people, on the praises of his people. And as we would recite his faithfulness, it would change you. And as his word was declared, that it would transform you. There was a young man, a long time ago. He was about 15 years old. And when we read his journals, we see that he was depressed often, that he was burdened, he felt a sense of guilt with God. And one morning, it was especially potent and poignant, this sense of dread. It's important to know about him, though, that he read his Bible every week, every day. He prayed every day, and he couldn't get rid of this feeling of guilt, this feeling of filth. It was a Sunday morning, and he woke up, and it was time to go to church, and outside, there was a a horrible snowstorm. But he decided to go through it anyway. And as he's walking, the storm is so bad that he's diverted from his normal path, and he goes down a side street. And when he's on this side street, he, he, he can't see, maybe, it's, it's really bad. So he recalls how he just diverted into an open door and it happened to be a Methodist congregation on his way to his normal congregation. And he sits down and word comes that the snow is so bad the preacher can't show up today. So a layman stands up and he walks up to the pulpit and he opens the Bible to Isaiah 45, 22 and reads, look unto me and be ye saved all the end of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. And now I'm going to read from his reflection on this moment. This man writes about this moment. He said, he, being the preacher, had not much to say, thank God, for that compelled him to keep on repeating the text. And there was nothing needed by me, at any rate, except his text. Then, Stopping, he pointed to where I was sitting under the gallery and he said, that young man there looks very miserable. And he shouted, as I think only a primitive Methodist can, look, look, young man, look now. And of course he meant look to Christ. Then I had this vision, not a vision to my eyes, but to my heart. I saw what a savior Christ was. Now, I can never tell you how it was, but I no sooner saw whom I was to believe Then I also understood what it was to believe, and I did believe in that moment. This man was Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers in church history. 
Think of the power of Spurgeon's preaching. And how did he come to faith? Some great oratory skill? No. Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me, and ye be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no one else. And if you read account, the preacher couldn't think of anything else to say, so he just kept reading the verse. And Spurgeon came to faith. I expect that type of stuff will happen today. And it does happen, because God chooses to still work to the ordinariness of his word when we proclaim his faithfulness, when we recite it out loud to one another. And here's the last thing we're going to talk about this morning that happens when we draw near to God. And that is this, we are renewed in relationship with the risen Christ. We're renewed in the relationship with the risen Christ. Now, when you talk about relationship with God, you have to talk about the word covenant. There's no other way the Bible talks about a relationship with God. We talk about it in terms of, well, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. It's like, okay, great. But what does the Bible say about that? Well, the Bible would say that you are in covenant relationship with him now. And that's the only thing that that matters. And so a covenant is this stunning blend of both law and love. It's a relationship that's much more intimate and loving than a mere legal contract could ever be, but it's one that's more enduring and binding than personal affection alone could make. So it's a bond of love made more intimate and solid because it's legal. Sounds like a wedding, right? You don't just proclaim your love to one another, but you come before the people with a preacher or someone who is officiating, and you make promises to one another. So it's both love and legal. And it's the very opposite of a consumer-vendor relationship, right? Because in that connection, it's maintained only if both parties serve each other's self-interest. And if not, then you part ways. You part the contract. But a covenant, by contrast, is a solemn, permanent thing, which is why it's incredibly risky. You can always write loopholes into a contract. You can always do that. But in a covenant, there are no loopholes. It's very risky. And the Bible talks about our relationship with God as a covenant. And I could show you from this context, but I don't have time today. I could show you in this context that what the author of the Hebrews is talking about in corporate worship is that corporate worship is a covenant renewal ceremony. It's like when uh, marriage... When, when two people at a certain anniversary get together and renew their covenant vows together, right? Nothing changed, but they come together to renew them. Why? To proclaim their faithfulness again to one another, to invite other people into that experience, to recite their faithfulness so far to one another, right? And they do that to renew it. Well, that's what we do every week. When we come into corporate worship, we are renewing our covenant vows with Jesus. Let me show you how. When we, when we think of a covenant, this is how a covenant works. And I'm going to show you from Genesis 15. I'm just going to tell you the story. We're not going to read it. In Genesis 15, Abraham has been called by God, and God tells him, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. And when he calls him, he tells him that. He reminds him, Abraham, I've called you out of the land of Ur, and I'm going to make a great nation. In fact, he takes him outside. He tells him to look up at the sky. And he says, you see all the stars? Your descendants will be more plentiful than that. And the problem was Abraham didn't even have one kid. But after that, it says, and Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. But even after that, Abraham says, well, how will I know, God? How will I know you'll do this? Even though he believed him. 
And God says, we will cut a covenant to show that I can never break my promises. And that's a, it's not what it says in the Bible, but a lot of English translations say make a covenant, but literally it's cut a covenant, and this is why. It's because when two parties would come together, there's always a king and a vassal or a larger, more authoritative person and uh, someone weaker, and they choose to be together. And when they choose this, there are stipulations that are made. And after they go through these stipulations, they then cut animals, and then they, they, they grasp arms or stand side by side, and they walk through it. And when they get to the other side, they say something like, if we don't keep our promises, let what happened to these animals happen to us. That's how serious a covenant was. So this is what's happening in Genesis 15. And when you expect God to link arms with Abraham and walk through these animals, guess what happens? God makes Abraham fall asleep. He conks out and Abraham has a vision. And in that vision, he sees a flaming torch and, and in a pot or kettle with smoke coming out. And it's floating. And this is God. This is representing God. And he walks through the animals. God, the triune God, walks through the animals while Abraham is conked out watching this happen. And this is why this is so important. It's so important because what we see is that although God and Abraham are covenant partners, the Lord walks alone through this path. And that means he's placing on his own head all the sanctions, and he's assuming on his own shoulders the curses that he himself would have imposed should the treaty be violated. Even when Abraham fails, those curses must go on God's head because God walked through by himself. He assumed the punishment of his own failing, which he never could do, but he also assumed the curses of Abraham and all of those children he said Abraham would have. So, when we see God's people all throughout scriptures fail to be faithful, we know that God was still carrying the entire burden for the fulfillment of that promise he made to Abraham. That's why in the prophets we see over and over, God says, not for your sake will I keep my promises, but for the sake of the promise I made to Abraham. Because those curses are still on my shoulders. You see, every week when we get together, for us too, we gather to renew this covenant, just like God's people did throughout all of time, to be reminded of God's faithfulness, to be reminded that God will take the burden of our failings. And as his people were set apart then for his purposes. And everywhere you look when these ceremonies take place in the scriptures, it's seen chiefly as God's action. These ceremonies are seen chiefly as God's action, not our own. So here we are, every time this covenant renewal happens, God is imagined in his faithfulness how he walked through those severed halves. But for us this morning, it's not animals. It's not the torn animals. It's the torn flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and the veil was torn, we see, from top to bottom, so no one would be confused that it was God who tore it, not man. And when we read in verse 19, therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, how, through the veil? No, 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 no. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. And so every week we gather because we've been summoned to draw near. And when we draw near, what happens? We recite God's faithfulness. We receive God's gifts. And we're renewed in this ceremony where it's as if Jesus is walking down this aisle right here, reminding us that all curses fall on his head 
And as we trust him, we have life. Otherwise, how are we going to be sent out? Well, we'll be sent out in the strength of the Lord Jesus. That's how. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you so grateful that it's in your faithfulness that our hope lies, not our own, and that you did fulfill your promise to Abraham so long ago, and you fulfilled it in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the perfect sacrifice. And now it's through his body that we follow, not to death, like all the priests of old would have, but to life. We ask that you would give us courage and you would give us strength as we walk with you and as we live our whole life before your face. We ask that you would transform our expectations for corporate worship, that we would see this not merely as experience or edification or moral training for our children, but we would see it as a covenant renewal ceremony where we are reminded over and over as we receive your gifts in Jesus by faith. And as we recite your covenant faithfulness to us, it still changes us. And by those things, we're renewed.